But when I was a kid, a movie came out that became sort of an instant classic in the minds, at least of kids of my generation. It was the story of a bulldog named Chance, a golden retriever named Shadow, and a a Himalayan cat named Sassy. The movie told the dramatic story of a journey from a friend's ranch where they thought they had been abandoned back to their home where they were reunited with their family. Facing down a, a mountain lion, an unfortunate encounter with a porcupine, surviving whitewater rapids, and Shadow's painful fall into a pit, Homeward Bound is a humorous and heartwarming story of perseverance and survival and love. It might not have gotten the attention that it deserved, partly because of when it was released. 1993 was a pretty amazing year for the movie industry with movies like Schindler's List, Harrison Ford's The Fugitive, Groundhog Day, Jurassic Park, Cool Runnings, Grumpy Old Men, Rudy, Cliffhanger, Mrs. Doubtfire, Sleepless in Seattle, The Sandlot, the list could go on of many of the classic movies made in 1993. But there's something about Homeward Bound, something about that long quest to get back home that intrigues us, that is in in some ways the theme of our text for today. Jacob is going to lead his family, complex and dramatic as they are, back toward his homeland. In fact, God calls him on this journey. And so our time in God's word today will be centered around the story of Jacob's journey home. It's a long text, and so I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, to open it to Genesis chapter 31 as I lead us through it today. I'll be skipping over some sections as we consider this chapter. Genesis chapter 31, I will start in verse 1. I remind you, as I do each week, that this is God's word to us. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So then Jacob calls his wives in the verses that follow, and he tells them about all of this, and we find their response in verse 14. So skip down to verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Paddan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. We see that, rightfully so, Rachel and Leah are angry with their father, that he treated them like commodities to be bought and sold, and that he spent their inheritance. But then in verse 19, we're given one curious and important detail. Look at verse 19 of Genesis 31. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. 
And so Jacob and his wives, children and others, leave and they cross the Euphrates River and head for Canaan. And on the third day, Laban finds out what has happened. And along with some others, he chases after his daughters and his son-in-law. And eventually he catches up with them. And we get the idea from the text, especially verse 29, that Laban was intending to harm Jacob. Many even presumed that he wanted to kill Jacob and to take his daughters and family and his possessions back home. Laban, the great deceiver of the deceiver, has now been deceived. And he gets a little dramatic about it. Verse 27 of our text says this, What have you done? You've deceived me and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away with joy and singing? And of course, we know that that probably wasn't Laban's intent. He would have found a deceitful and conniving way to keep his daughters and grandchildren and to keep Jacob working for him. But in verse 30, we get to the heart of the matter. Laban says, Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my gods? Verse 32 tells us that Jacob had no knowledge of the stolen idols. And Laban begins a search in all of the tents looking for these idols. But, but Rachel has hidden them. Uh, listen to this unique exchange uh, starting in verse 33 between Laban and Rachel. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle. And was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob then responds by going on the offensive. He mentions to Laban, reminds him of all the things that Jacob had done for Laban over the years, and eventually Laban gives in. He relents, and he recommends that they establish a covenant, a peace treaty of sorts, promising not to harm one another. And we see the conclusion of this encounter starting in verse 51. It says this, Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap, and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side and harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. And after they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them, and then he left and returned home. It's a unique story, a strange encounter, but we've come to expect nothing less from this family. But as we've also come to expect, this encounter is full of implications for you and I. Allow me to share two of them with you today. The first one is this, that God's people are part of a story that is bigger than them. I think to understand this idea, we might have to go back to the previous chapter, verses 25 through 43 of chapter 30. We see in these verses that 
Jacob had become quite wealthy. God had miraculously increased his herds, uh, which led to this great wealth. I'd encourage you to read that passage this week. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting passage to see how God increases Jacob's herds at the expense of his father-in-law. And we see that Jacob's wealth had grown considerably at Laban's expense. And the brothers of Rachel and Leah are upset because it was ultimately at their expense. Now, most human beings, especially us as Americans, if we were in Jacob's situation, we would probably figure out a way to stick around and milk that for all it's worth. That's not the case for Jacob. All the way back in chapter 30, verse 25, Jacob expresses a desire to get back home. We see in verse 3 of our text today, it wasn't just Jacob's desire. God was calling Jacob to go back to his homeland. God says, as you go, I will be with you. And we know that there's something larger, something more significant that's happening in this story. If you remember, all the way back in October, I preached on Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3, at the very moment that our first parents sinned and plunged humanity into the predicament in which we find ourselves today, God made a promise. He promised that the seed, the offspring of the woman, would crush the head of that first deceiver. And everything that we've discussed since then in Genesis, as we've been watching the story unfold, has been all about God's fulfillment of that promise. In fact, if we were to give sort of a one-sentence summary to the entire Old Testament, it could be as simple as God uses sinful people to bring about his answer for sin. And so we must read our text for today, and each and every text in the Old Testament with that in mind. Failing to do that causes us to fail to see the true and full meaning of the passage. That's why so much of the teaching that you see out there about the Old Testament is, uh, if I may be a little crass, uh, complete garbage. Many have turned the Old Testament into a Christian version of Aesop's fables. Stories whose purpose is to teach you a, a moral or ethical lesson. And we see this all the time uh, regarding the Old Testament, as if Noah existed to teach you to be resolute in the midst of cultural pressure. Or as if Moses existed to model leadership ability. Or as if David existed to teach you how to be brave in the face of your giants. It's not to say we shouldn't learn moral or ethical lessons from the Old Testament. We should as long as we recognize that those stories are secondary and often just incidental to what's actually going on, to the true meaning and purpose of those narratives. While Jacob and his dramatic family situation is developing, God is at work doing something. God is at work working out his plan to save the world from sin and death. And we have to always remember these things and read the Old Testament with that in mind. You might think about it this way. God's redemptive plan that culminates in Jesus Christ conquering sin and death and Satan is the lens through which we read and understand the Old Testament. Jacob could have been tempted to stay where he was. It may have been financially profitable for him. The situation wasn't ideal. His father-in-law was crooked, but it, it was making him rich. He could have just kept on accumulating wealth, living the good life, maintaining the status quo. 
But of course, Jacob was part of something bigger than just Jacob and his family. His family was part of, they were part of a story that was unfolding that was bigger than they could ever have imagined. God is going to lead this family back to Canaan and through them continue his plan to redeem the world. And when we read the New Testament, we begin to realize that each of us are part of that same redemptive program. Each of us are called into something that's much larger than ourselves. We are sent out with the gospel, entrusted with the good news. We are ambassadors tasked with sharing what Christ has done. Just like Jacob and Leah and Rachel, God's people are part of a story that's bigger than themselves. The second thing I want you to see today is this, that we need to check our pockets for idols. The story of idolatry that's woven into this account seems to implicate both Laban, who is the owner of these idols, as well as Rachel, who steals them. It might be helpful to understand a little bit about what is going on here. There's some debate about this, about what the, the full meaning of these idols is. But almost everybody agrees that Laban's faith was a mix of acknowledging the presence, the existence of the one true God, while also holding on to the pagan idol-worshiping tradition of his ancestors. This becomes clear in the previous chapter. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 27, Laban was practicing what's called divination. We don't know the exact nature of Laban's divination, but the word almost always refers to trying to discover knowledge and secrets and mysteries through spiritual means, through spiritual forces, apart from the one true God. And so Laban is living his life with one foot in the religion of his ancestors, worshiping idols, and the, another foot trying to worship the one true God. And, and it appears that this might be the same for Rachel as well. These household idols, household gods, were likely thought to bring a blessing, to bring prosperity upon the household. They were likely miniature fake gods that could be set up on an altar and worshipped. You could offer sacrifices to them with the idea that they would increase wealth, blessing, prosperity, and fertility. And so we might get an understanding of why Rachel would want these in her possession. Her father was a wealthy, fairly successful man, so they seemed to work well for him. Why not steal them on the off chance that they would help her family out in the future. It's also possible that these idols were crafted out of precious metals, something that would have value, and so they could be considered currency down the road. Most likely, Rachel's motivation was a combination of these two factors. She was superstitious, clinging to the hope that these idols would bless her, and she also wanted them because they were worth something. Jewish historians, as the Jewish tradition has passed down this story, they've tried to put the best possible spin on Rachel's actions. They teach that Rachel was acting with the best of intentions, that she was stealing these idols from her dad in hopes that he would get out from under this curse of idolatry. But, but the explanation doesn't really stand up to logic. If Rachel were just acting out of reverence for God and merely wanting to to take them so that her father would quit worshiping them, it seems like she would have gotten rid of them pretty quickly, right? If she had viewed them as spiritually dangerous, she would have dug a hole somewhere along the way and buried them and not 
hidden them from Jacob and kept them for the journey. It's quite likely that Rachel, like her father, wanted the best of both worlds. She wanted the security and supposed good luck that the idols brought her family. She'd been raised with. It's what she'd always known. But she also wanted the blessing of Jacob's God, of the one true God. The scene in the tent is certainly unique. It's an example of the extent to which Rachel would go to cover up her theft as her father comes into the tent in search of the idols. Rachel has them hidden underneath of her and tells her father that she would stand up to greet him if it weren't for the fact that it was that time of the month. We don't know if Rachel is being honest. Scripture doesn't reveal that to us or if it was just a ploy to keep the idols hidden beneath her. Either way, it worked, and Laban ends his search and begins to propose a peace treaty with Jacob. And again, we're we're left with the clear illustration of our human condition. How many of us, if we looked into our proverbial saddlebags, if we glanced deep into our pockets, would find idols that we've been holding on to for years? Many of us have had these conversations with the Lord, promising to him that he's the Lord of our life, but but meanwhile, covering up those idols in our pockets. And these idols that we cling to take on any number of forms, don't they? Just like in the ancient world, we modern people have countless idols that we can't seem to let go of. We can't seem to leave behind when we follow the Lord. As American Christians, we've been given some degree of blanket acceptance when it comes to the idol, for example, of financial gain, prosperity, greed. We see this every time someone preaches on the story of of the rich young man in Mark chapter 10. He comes to Jesus and he asks what he must do to be saved, and as the conversation develops, Jesus tells him it's pretty simple. Sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man goes away discouraged, dismayed, heartbroken, because Mark records for us he was very rich. What's interesting is if you hear that encounter preached elsewhere in the world, it's almost always preached for exactly what it says. To follow Jesus means to offer up everything you have to him. But when you hear this preached in America, even the most staunch literalists will make it figurative, right? Will make it metaphorical. Because, of course, Jesus can't actually demand that we abandon our material idols in order to follow him. That would be a step too far. And, of course, there are many other examples of the types of idols that we carry around in our pockets, hiding, defending. We want the best of both worlds. We want Jesus, but we also want the things that this world offers. One of my favorite authors and theologians, Tim Keller, says that an idol is anything that we seek with the hope that it will give us what only God can actually give us. Anything that we seek with the hope that it will give us what only God can actually give us. When does, for example, wealth become an idol? When it goes from being a gift from God to provide what I need for today? to being the place that I'm looking for security, hope, peace. And most of us can admit that it's a very fine line between those two things. When do our politics become an idol? 
when we start thinking that there is little hope to be found if our guy doesn't get elected. Or when we begin to find our identity as a conservative or a progressive rather than as a child of God. I'm amazed and discouraged the amount of political idolatry that I witness in people who claim to believe that Jesus is king. That in a few short years, none of this will actually matter. If you're a Christian today, if you believe that what God has promised you is true, you are homeward bound. You are on your way, like Jacob and his family, to the promised land. It's just a matter of time. Your true home lies ahead of you. It's not here. You're just passing through. But, but the reality is most of us don't really fully trust that what God has said is true. And so we grab those idols and we shove them in our saddlebags and in our pockets for the journey. Just in case things don't play out like God has said. We hedge our bets. We want one foot with Jesus and one foot still in the world. We want to be able to follow Jesus, but we also want a safety net to fall back upon. We love the idols that we grew up with. We want what God offers, but we don't fully trust him, fully believe that what he says is true. And so we cling on to those idols like a safety blanket. We are like the little kid who is fully convinced that there are monsters in his bedroom. But if they could just cling to that blanket, then everything will be okay. We don't believe when our father tells us that he's in control, that he will protect us, that he will watch over us. We, like Rachel, want the best of both worlds. Both Laban and Rachel claim to believe in the one true God. We heard it from Rachel's lips in our text last week. We hear it from Laban in our text today in verse 49 when he appeals to the name of Yahweh. Confessing the name of the one true God, confessing faith in God with idols in their pockets. If you're honest, you probably see a lot of yourself in the story wanting to follow Jesus wanting to be part of his redemptive plan, but you stick your hand down in your pocket and just make sure that that idol's still there, just in case. Here's the reality. The Christian life is one of daily repentance and faith. You might empty that pocket today. Tell God, I'm following you. I'm, I'm turning my back. I'm turning away from these idols. And then tomorrow you're going to Feel in that pocket again, aren't you? Make sure it's there. It's what we do. The Christian life is one of daily repentance and faith. What does it mean to repent? We might tend to think of it as the thing we did that one time when we came to, to trust in Jesus. We, we prayed the, the sinner's prayer. We confessed that we were sinners and that we needed a, a Savior. We repented. We might think of it in that way, but the Christian life is not a life of singular Repentance, one day, one time, one place, but of daily repentance, daily shining the light of God's word into the darkest pockets and saddlebags of our lives and leaving those idols at the cross, believing the goodness and the promise of God, believing that what God has said is true, and that Jesus is enough. We're all on this journey, passing through on our way home, 
part of a story that's much bigger than just us. Living in daily repentance and faith. But what is it that makes this possible? Think about what made peace possible in the story. What was it that took the tension between Jacob and Laban and seemed to resolve it, that made peace? We have this clue dropped at the end of our story of of what it is that takes us from being dead in our sin to part of God's beautiful redemptive story of what it is that we find when we return to the cross with a pocket full of idols. Verse 53 says this, So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. And then look at what he did next, verse 54. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country, and he invited his relatives to a meal. Jacob offers a sacrifice. He sacrifices to the Lord. Blood was shed. And then think about the significance of this. That blood secured peace between Jacob and Laban. And what is it that follows? What what happens as a result of that? Laban kisses his daughters and his grandchildren and he blesses them. And then he leaves. And I want you to notice something today. That this dramatic story of deceit and greed and idolatry finds its resolution in the blood of the sacrifice and in the meal of grace that followed it. And here's what that means. Before us today is the body and blood of a true and better sacrifice. And just as the sacrifice made peace, brought to resolution this idolatry and this this family drama and secured the peace of a messy family, so too does the sacrifice of Jesus, of which we participate and partake today. It ensures the resolution, the forgiveness, the redemption of all things. I don't know what feuding has been going on in your life or your family. I don't know what idols you brought in here with you today. Reach deep down in your pockets. I don't know what sin is forefront in your life today, but I do know this, that the sacrifice that Christ made is sufficient for it all. We're free to empty our pockets, to empty our saddlebags at the cross today, to leave our relational drama and competition and hurt feelings and unforgiveness and maybe even hatred at the cross of Christ today, because this sacrifice Because the body and blood of Christ given and shed for you is sufficient. And we can leave here today with with empty pockets. With our eyes fixed securely on the promised land to which God is leading us. That's what the sacrifice does. That's what the meal of grace gives to us. Jesus invites us to come to repent, to believe the good news, to receive his grace anew today, and to leave here with empty pockets. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder from your word that you are always at work, working to redeem us, working to rescue humanity. We thank you that just as you used Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Laban in your redemptive plan that you use sinners like us. God, we're confronted with the reality of idolatry today. 
And while none of us, I would assume, are are carrying actual idols in our pockets this morning, many of us bow to them every day. Whether money or power, politics, whatever it is, our hearts are prone to look anywhere and everywhere other than to you alone. And so we confess our sin to you. We thank you for the sacrifice that brought peace. And so we come to your table today, Lord, sinful, undeserving, and yet grateful for your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.